Welcome, and thank you for pressing play. I'm Crystal Bergfield, and this is Back to School with Crystal Bergfield. Throughout history, great teachers have stepped forward to help show us the way to coexist in society. They have urged us to consider our role in community. Just like those teachers, I am offering up my knowledge and experience to contribute to a just, responsible, and innovative United States. Through storytelling, interviews, and in-depth discussions, I will dive into the issues that plague our society and highlight new ideas that could contribute to a healthy nation. This podcast is part of a larger curriculum to educate Americans about our society. Find your seat. Take a breath and prepare to expand your mind, your heart, and your reality. Hello, friends, and welcome back to school. I am Crystal Bergfield, and I'm joined today out of studio. We are in the Independent Media Center in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. I'm joined here with Kim Bryan, who is the executive director of Rattle the Stars. Thank you, Kim, for joining me. Thank you for having me. So Kim is with me here today. I met her in the neighborhood, I don't know, last week. She was doing a presentation on suicide education and prevention. And what drew me to Kim was, one, her story, uh, but also the way that she approaches talking about suicide. So for those of you who don't know, May is and was all about uh, mental health awareness and specifically child's mental health awareness. And suicide is something that comes up. And actually, before we get any further, Kim, can you share the statistics of suicide among children and even into adults? Mm-hmm. Something that you shared. Um, sure. So suicide is the second leading cause of death um, for people age uh, 10 to about 34 in this country. Um, and put a little context on that, I guess. Um, first of all, we only have data for beginning at 10. There are suicide deaths of children younger than 10, very yeah. unfortunately. Um, the youngest recorded suicide death in the in the United States was a six-year-old. Mm. Um, so it does happen even younger than 10. But when we say that suicide is the second leading cause of death, we have to keep in mind, especially for youth, young people don't really die a lot, right? Um, they're generally very healthy. Um, we, you know, we pretty much make it to adulthood most yeah. of the time. Um, but when we look at the reasons that kids die when they do, um, the only thing ahead of suicide on that list is accidental deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are things like car accidents or um, accidental drownings or falls, that those are really typical things for kids to right. experience. Right. Um, there are more suicide deaths among youth than homicide deaths. Wow and um, deaths from childhood cancer. Mm. Um, so when we kind of put that into thinking about how how much time and effort and awareness we put on those things, right? Mm. We spend a lot of time talking about preventing um, homicide deaths of children, and we spend a lot of time and effort and money on preventing uh, deaths from childhood cancer. And this is, it's not to diminish those because those are really important things. Of course. Um, and those affect, you know, a lot of families, but more families are affected by youth suicide. And we talk very little about that issue. Um, 
the other thing really important to keep in mind is when we talk about it being the second leading cause of death for youth, it kind of drops on that list as we age. And, and overall, it ends up being the 10th leading cause of death. Now, that does not mean that fewer older people die of suicide. Um, actually, the rate of suicide increases as we age. Mm -hmm. So more older people are dying of suicide. Um but we have to remember older people die of other things, right? Yes, we yes. die of aging. <laughs> Our bodies start functioning, you know, they, they quit working right and yes. we get diseases. And, 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 you know, so we die of heart disease and diabetes and, and strokes and things like that. Um, and so we die more frequently of those. Mm -hmm. But suicide is still a major cause of death for, for all age groups and actually more amongst older people than younger people. But when we talk about youth suicide, that's the one that really strikes us, right? Yeah. Because those are children, yeah. right? And, and, it, and it really, um, that's what pulls at our heartstrings when we think of children who are in that such, that place, right, where they have taken their own life and, and done something yeah. to end their own life. Um, that's really hard to, to accept. Yeah. And for anybody who's listened to the podcast, they will tell you that I rant about this too often, not too often, I don't think, but um, quite frequently that, you know, we, our children, are killing themselves? Why are we not stopping in our tracks and asking why and trying to understand it and trying to prevent it? Well, here's my angel, Kim. <laughs> Kim has shown up um, to really share a little bit today. And so we're going to have a discussion about, um, you know, suicide and um, some of the causes, some of the, the symptoms that we see, um, talking about how the environment affects suicide in general. And then we'll talk about the work that Kim's doing um, to, to educate and, and some of the other work I think that's being done. Um, we can acknowledge that and you'll get a little bit of homework. So let's get into it today. I want to start, Kim, with hearing a little bit more about you and your organization, Rattle the Stars. Mm -hmm. So Kim is the executive director of an organization called Rattle the Stars, and you can find it at rattlethestars.org if you want to learn more. But Kim, can you share a little bit about the organization and what drew you to start this organization? Sure. So Unfortunately, like many people who do suicide prevention work, um, I do this work because I have a personal, I experienced a personal loss. Um, so three years ago, my son died of suicide when he was 19. Um, and at that time, um, I had, you know, my younger children and my, my daughter was uh, a junior in high school at the time that he died. And she decided immediately, like this, her way of coping was wanting to do something. Yeah. So she contacted her principal at her school and she, it was the end of the school year. And, and, you know, she said next year, I want to start doing something at school to raise awareness and talk about suicide. And her principal was very supportive um, and, and welcomed that. And so I started doing this as a way to support my child, right? This mm -hmm. was her way of coping and she wanted 
to do this, and I wanted to support that. Um, so that was sort of one thing that happened. The other thing that happened was when our, you know, when my son died, we were very open in his obituary about how he died. We, mm-hmm. we included his cause of death as suicide. Um, and we included, um, you know, crisis information for the suicide prevention lifeline in, in his obituary. And that kind of got a lot of attention in our community. And I think it opened the door and, and people realized that we were kind of the safe people that they could talk to. Um, And so people started coming to us and they started sharing their stories with us of their family members and friends that they had lost. Um, And so we were hearing a lot about what people were experiencing in our community. And so we really started to recognize what the needs were. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so you know, that coupled with doing some prevention work at the school really sort of set us on this trajectory. It's not something that, you know, we just kind of woke up and said, hey, let's start a suicide prevention organization. Um, it just sort of happened that way. We, we started going down this path and, and, and then it, it, we just kept going, yeah. right? Um, and realizing what the needs were in the community and, and thought, well, you know, we have the ability. I have the ability to address those needs. So let's work on that, right? Um, we need education for our students on suicide prevention. Yeah. So, you know, started looking for a program and didn't really find one that would be a good fit. So then it became, well, we'll make a program, right? Um, and so that was three years ago. And, and now here we are. And, and we're doing lots of different things in the community around suicide prevention. Yeah. Thank you, Kim, for doing that work, um, for giving of yourself. Um, I, I love it when I hear people, I guess, young people, especially coming to action mm-hmm. when they have pain and suffering, because it, like you were saying, people started flocking to you, mm-hmm. um, that they felt safe. Um, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with closing down. Um, but it's, to me, when I hear about folks who um, jump to action, those are the lights that we all kind of look to. And, it, and yeah. it often it's that saving grace for many people who do close down, um, who think, okay, here's that safe space as you were talking about. Yeah, right. And I think it, you know, it became a situation where, you know, suicide is so stigmatized in our society Mm -hmm. and people don't have a space to talk about it. Um, They don't have a space to share what they experience and what they feel about their experience. Um, And so when they see somebody who's out there, right, who's publicly saying this was suicide and this was my experience, they see that as that is that safe space. I can go to this person and I can talk to them and they will understand, Mm -hmm. right? They won't Mm -hmm. judge me. Um, They'll be supportive of me because they've been there. And so that's what ended up happening. Um, And so that was kind of one of the first things we recognized was, okay, well, there's no space for people to talk about this experience. That's why they're coming to us and talking about it. But listening to their stories really, you know, highlighted those other needs needs that people have. And, and so it, it became a situation where it's, it's not what I set out to do, but once you have that knowledge and, yeah. and you're aware of these things and you have the ability to do something about that, um, you know, you have a responsibility almost, yeah. you know, to address those issues. Yeah. Yeah. Kim and I were talking about, um, that responsibility, um, but having that privilege yes. um, to have the education. So, and I did a, a terrible job setting Kim up 
<laughs> with that she's this executive director of Rattle the Stars, but she also has her degrees in psychology and sociology as well. So she, she is a sociologist. And um, so we're kindred in that space. And um, for those of you listening, as sociologists, we are curious to understand um, any really any aspect of society, but we, we dig into the data, we, we observe the world around us, and we try to figure out different um, solutions sometimes or just to understand. Um, so that's part of Kim's background, so you all can know um, a little bit more. But, you know, Kim, you were talking about um, that feeling of um, not being accepted or being judged, that stigma. And I will share a, a bit about um, what I felt so connected in Kim's message was that she was sharing not only her background. Immediately, I was like, oh, I know this woman. <laughs> but also, um, you you talked about that stigma. And that is something that I felt um, when I was in the military and was raped and tortured and I stayed in this space and I was still living there away from home here, a young woman, um, 19 and 20 years old in this space. And I felt shame um, for a few reasons. One, they were telling me, you know, I was wrong and I, I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, but part of the the piece of shame was that I was sexually active. And I grew up in a culture where you don't have sex until you're married. So I already felt like a sinner, if you will. I, I felt this shame. Um, and, but then you add sexual assault on top of it. And so I thought, of course, God must be um, striking me down or must be um, reprimanding me for, for having sex. And so I took on that shame and, you know, I didn't talk, I didn't tell anybody back home what had happened to me. It took almost five years for me to even speak about it with my counselor. She knew what had happened and I could get a few words out, but I couldn't even share the full story for many years um, because that stigma is real. And it felt um, it was scary to talk about it because in my mind, um, all I felt was I'm the person that's wrong here and I should have been stronger. I should have said no. I should have gotten out of that situation. All of these I should have, could have, would have. Um, and I, I had no compassion for myself um, and I couldn't share. And so I got stuck in that space. Um, but in that stigma, that is where Kim is really addressing um, a suicide that um, we do have a stigma. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the education that you're doing to really um, work past the stigma? And can you share a few of the stories that have um, the success stories, I guess, in people sharing with you how helpful it's been? Yeah, sure. So um, our so we, we do provide um, an education program um, to teach people about suicide and how they can intervene with somebody who, who may potentially be having thoughts of suicide. And, you know, that program came about really because what we heard from people um, was that need around um, 
knowing what to say and what to do in that situation. Um, so unfortunately, there's lots of uh, stories and instances, and it happened to us personally with our, you know, with my child as well, where, um, you know, youth are talking about these things with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When they're going through difficult times emotionally, when they're having thoughts of suicide, they're telling their friends, um, they're talking to their friends about it, but they're not really talking to adults. Yeah. Um, and so the problem is, is that those friends that they're talking to, they don't know what to say and they don't know what to do in those situations. Um, so they don't do anything. Yeah. Right. Um, and, but even for adults, um, you know, who, who, and even adults in positions where they're tasked with this, like our teachers and our, our counselors, um, it's not something that they're trained to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so people are very uncomfortable with this and they say, I don't know what to say to someone or more importantly, I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Right. I'm afraid I'm going to say something to push this person in that direction. And so they don't say anything at all. And so, but really it's not that, it doesn't have to be that difficult. So we, we developed a training program where we teach those communication skills and we try to teach people how to talk about this. Um, but part of that education is also addressing the stigma and understanding how people get to the point of having thoughts of suicide. Yes. Um, and really importantly, we, we talk about this, um, not just from a place of mental illness, because we have, you know, unfortunately, there's a myth in our society that if you have thoughts of suicide, um, you're mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and we we tend to link um, suicide with depression. Mm-hmm. Um, depression is a risk factor for suicide, but but it doesn't cause suicide. Yes. Lots of people attempt and die of suicide who are not depressed, yeah. and not everybody who has depression has you know, suicidal thoughts. Um, so while they're related, they're, they're not exactly, um, you know, the same thing. Um, but what we really focus on coming from, you know, a background of sociology is looking at what are the experiences that people have in their lives mm-hmm. um, that that kind of get them to this point. Because it's not just what's going on within inside our body and our brain with genetics and, and biology, mm-hmm. um, but it's also what what we experience in the world, um, our social experiences, and then importantly, how we internalize those things and what we think about ourselves because of those experiences. Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about those. I mean, primarily the, you know, when we're talking about those social things, we're talking about people who experience crisis Mm -hmm. in their life, right? Mm -hmm. Who experience trauma. Um, But really importantly, we want to understand that um, while there are things that we can all recognize as being a traumatic experience, like a sexual assault, like experiencing um, violence or being the victim of a crime or experiencing a natural disaster or mm-hmm. even a car accident, we recognize those things as being traumatic. Um, but we can also experience crisis just in our everyday lives, right? Yes. Um, so any time where we feel that um, we don't have the ability to cope with the stress or the overwhelm emotions that we're feeling, that can put somebody into a crisis situation. Um, and for, you know, many people, that could be something like a job loss, mm-hmm. a divorce, mm-hmm. a, a fight with a significant other, a problem in, you know, a relationship, you know, for, for kids with their parents. Um, for youth, it could be getting bad grades, right? Yeah. It could be breakup um, with, with a partner. 
Um, so there's lots of other things that, that can trigger those feelings where we're so stressed and we don't feel like we can cope with it. Um, and then the other part of that is how that affects our thoughts about ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So we all have, and those of us who are, you know, students of sociology understand roles and expectations, right? Yes. So we have roles for, in our lives and that, you know, for our youth, it's, it's being a child, right? Being a son or a daughter, being a, a brother or a sister, um, being a friend to their mm -hmm. friends, being a student. These are all roles that they have. And they, they know the expectations that are attached to mm -hmm. those roles that yeah. in this role, I should be this way, right? This is what I should be able to do and how I should be. Right. And so when kids feel like they're not able to meet those expectations, mm -hmm. then that's when they can start having thoughts of suicide. So when they feel like I have to get good grades and I have to go to college because that's what's expected of me, yes. if I'm not able to do that, then I'm not a good child. I'm yes. not a good student. Yeah. Um, and, and so they can start to feel um, you know, disconnected and they can feel like they're a burden on yeah. their family and friends because they're not doing the things that are expected of them. Yeah. So really the important thing is, is that it, it's, it's an understanding that the experience of having thoughts of suicide is not because of a failure within the person. Um, it's because of the things that the person is experiencing around them. Yeah. And so it's really shifting that focus from the individual to the community and to society. And when we do that, then we can start to, to help people to feel this is not my fault, yes. right? There's yeah. nothing wrong with me that I'm feeling this way, yes. right? Um, you know, and, and so that's how we start to address that stigma through our training. Yeah. Well, and you and I were talking the other day about the, uh, the symptoms of a sick society. Yes. And that we, as the citizens in the United States, we're the ones who exhibit those symptoms yes. um, in this sick society. Um, and so I think that's what you were talking about quite a bit with um, how that trauma, that uh, feeling of failure, the, all of those pieces in, in the environment in which we live, mm -hmm. those are the ones that we start to take, we carry those mm -hmm. symptoms. Um, do you want to expand? a little bit more on that um, symptoms. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, thinking again, sociologically, like we can go all the way back to Durkheim, right? <laughs> Who wrote suicide, right? Yes. Did this seminal work on suicide. Yes. And, and, even then, over 100 years ago, Durkheim was able to show how the uh, characteristics of the society affected um, yes. this very individual choice of or what people perceive as a choice of suicide, this yes. very individual action. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we see now is, is you know, unfortunately, in the United States, the, the suicide rate has been increasing for at least um, for about two decades now, mm -hmm. for about 20 years. Um, and, our, and our youth suicide rate has been increasing steadily for about 20 years. Wow. Um, but this does not, when we kind of look at that statistic and we go, wow, that's shocking. This is going up. Well, mm -hmm. what does that statistic really tell us? Yes. Um, because it's not that kids are more mentally ill or kids are having more problems. Um, that there's something wrong with individual children now. Yeah. It, what it tells us is that there's something going on in our society yes. that that kids feel that they're not um, 
getting their needs met, right? There's some issue with society where we are not helping children to feel safe and supported and loved and and accepted and part of the society. Um, and then that's why they're developing these thoughts of suicide and our rate is increasing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, really, when we look at that data, it's shifting that focus back to society, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and our individual um, people are exhibiting those symptoms, just what you said, the symptoms of what's wrong with society. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, we don't necessarily see all of the things in society. Mm-hmm. We see what's going on with individuals, yes. right? Because we interact personally with individuals. So that's where we need to pay attention to, you know, the warning signs that individuals are showing, mm-hmm. um, you know, when they're at risk for suicide. And that's how we can kind of pay attention and, and hope, hopefully identify these people and offer support to them. Yeah. And I would add to Kim that the leadership in our country has a responsibility to ensure that we have safety and support. That is what the government is here to do, to ensure yes. that we have safety and security. And Provides for the general welfare, right? Yes, exactly. And especially the children, right? The, the children are the ones who grew up to be the adults. And if we don't serve them as children, then we're going to have to deal with them as adults. And you and I went to the News and Brews the other night for talking about um, childhood mental illness. And um, one of the women, Regina there, said, you know, if we don't address the children, we have to address them as adults. So why aren't we starting here with the children? We know better. We've Mm got to do better. Um, And so for me, when I think about it, you know, we need more education around it. Mm -hmm. Um, And just having a national leader or even a state leader, even a city leader saying, hey, this is a huge problem and there are little things that we can be doing. There are actions that we can take. There are um, methods. There are even just the way that we communicate with one another, just the way we acknowledge somebody else. That matters. And those little things add up. And if we take that action, and, and just as we talked about your daughter at the beginning, her taking that action, I'm sure has saved so many lives of just feeling like it's okay that I'm not okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we have had that experience, you know, fortunately through activities that we've done and, and, um, you know, events that we've held where it's not uncommon. Um, I mean, it actually happens nearly every time we go into a high school and um, we have an activity or an event around suicide or mental illness. Um, We have a student who, who will come up to an adult and, and, and share that experience and say, I have thoughts of suicide. I need help with that. Um, and so those events were able to, you know, identify those kids and help them get the support, um, that they're looking for. Um, and even other community events, you know, and I've, I've, I've had that experience of, um, you know, meeting people later on down the road where somebody says, Oh, you know, I, I went to this event that Mm -hmm. you had and, you know, I heard what you said and I listened to you talk and, you know, I, I, I was having thoughts of suicide and, you know, I was planning, um, you know, to hurt myself, but mm-hmm. because I heard what you said and, and we talked about this, that, that I called the hotline, wow. right. And now wow. I'm, I'm getting support and I'm doing better. Um, so we know that opening up that conversation 
is really important. Having that out there publicly when, when you're out there and you're just saying, hey, we're talking about suicide. Mm-hmm. We're out here and we're talking about it and it's okay to talk about it. Yeah. Is It's just, a, it's a powerful thing for the people who are um, dealing with that issue because they're very often in the shadows and they don't feel safe and they don't feel comfortable and they feel stigmatized and they don't feel that they'll be understood. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you said about having leadership is so vital. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of leaders right now in our country who are taking that on and saying, this is an issue and we need to address this issue. And, and you know, not just being vocal publicly, but also looking at the way that our government funds mm-hmm. um, initiatives. Absolutely, where the money goes. Right, where the money goes is really important because, you know, um, like we understand, right, where where we put our money is what we value. Yes. That, that illustrates yes. our values where we put our money. Um, well, you know, unfortunately, even though suicide is a leading cause of death for Americans, there is very little federal money put to prevention and, and, and research and um, around suicide suicide. Um, Lots of money goes to other things that uh, other causes of death that actually um, kill less people than suicide, but we don't put very much money to suicide prevention. Um, And we don't talk about it at that level from our our leadership. It's not something that's being addressed very often, Um, but it would be a huge benefit, right? And, and, And I think that that, again, goes back to that stigma where we feel like this is a, such an individual level issue and that's the way that we understand it. And so we don't, um, you know, it's hard to get support to put money to suicide prevention because people are still very much wrapped up in these myths that, that this is an individual choice that, um, somebody decides to do this. And if they have decided to do it, there's nothing you can do to prevent them. Right. Once you've made up your mind that, that you're going to attempt suicide, nobody can stop you. Mm. So we have all of these myths that are still very prevalent in our society. And that's reflected in in the lack of um, resources that is put to suicide prevention. So it's really, you know, we need this concerted effort to make this shift um, in in our culture and in our consciousness to show people that it's not because of what's going on in the individual. It's because of our society, right? And it's because of what's going on in our society. So when we see the data and statistics, like we said, around youth suicide, um, the kids are not okay, right? They're not doing okay. And it's not because of them. It's because of what's going on everywhere else and what they're experiencing. Yeah. Yes. Well said. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. You know, I I wanted to also just tap into the the mental illness myth. Mm -hmm. And also you and I spoke the other day about... um, mental health and suicide and seeking help. And you just mentioned, right, there's a stigma. We don't want to talk about it. And I felt that. I felt if I told somebody that I wanted to kill myself, then they would lock me up. And I knew that's not what I needed, but I knew that that was the only help I was going to get. And so I just stayed silent. Um, But can you just talk briefly about, and, and I will say too, that Kim educated me and helped me really clarify the illness from um, disease or from that trauma that comes up. Um, and, and we have to make sure that we are, um, um, acknowledging those who have mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but also we over diagnose, is that right? And yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, 
we have an unfortunate uh, sort of component of our healthcare system um, with with you know both private insurance and Medicare and Medicaid, our, our public health um, insurance systems. That in order for people to receive treatment, um, they have to have a diagnosis, yes. right? So so all of our clinicians, our counselors, our therapists, they have to diagnose somebody yes. with with something in order to um, get. Uh, for that to be a billable uh, service that they're providing to that person. So for them to get paid for the service they're providing, they have to diagnose somebody. Um, Clinicians have a problem with that because they don't like having to diagnose people. Mm, Um, You know, for some people, the the label um, can be not only psychologically hard to accept, um, but unfortunately for for many people, it can have very real consequences in their life. Um, So for people who have certain jobs, Jobs where um, it, it could affect their job and their their ability to do their job um, if they have that label of being uh, having mental illness mm-hmm. or, or um, having suicidal thoughts. So things, um, you know, our first responders, yes. right? Yes. Uh, police and 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 um, emergency medical personnel and firemen. Um, that the diagnosis military. and yes. the military yeah. having that diagnosis of a mental illness um, could cause that person to be relieved of. Of, of duties, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's an unfortunate situation. And I would add to Kim that one of the side effects I felt was that um, they diagnosed me with depression. Mm-hmm. So now I've got depression the rest of my life. When I knew that wasn't true, um, for me, it was the trauma that I endured. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't until after I was able to remove myself and and really heal myself that I could see, oh, it was the environment. That's not crystal. (laughs) That's the environment. And it's it's really interesting that that you bring that up because there was, you know, there's been a movement um, in the last, you know, decade or or two um, in sort of the mental health realm about trying to... um, to, to put out this idea of, of mental illness as being biological, mm-hmm. right? That it's just something you have. You can't help it. Um, and in many cases, that that is the it case, happen, right? Yes. It, it, it is. There are people who, who have biological bases for mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what they actually found, right, when we start looking at this is that attaching mental illness to biology actually increased stigma. Mm, wow. For the exact reason that you just said, people felt like, well, but then if I get diagnosed, that means I have this thing for the rest of my life yes. and, and I can't get rid of it. Um, it's part of me, right? It's my body, uh, you know, that this is just the way my body is and or my brain is. Mm-hmm. Um, and people didn't like that, right? Yeah. It doesn't sit well. People, you know, so it kind of actually increased the stigma. Wow. Um, but even in, in that case, right, we know that that's not the case, right? We know that most people who, and even people who have experience with mental illness, um, those things, mental illness is still very much related to what, what you know, you're experiencing mm-hmm. in your life. So, um, you know, we look at even people who are diagnosed with depression um, are very often people who have experienced significant losses in their life, job losses, relationship problems, all of these things are what trigger depressive episodes for people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's one way where we want to try to shift that focus away from the individual. It's not you. It's not your fault. Yes, there are things going on in your body, but it's also what you're experiencing, right? It's it's what's going on in the world. Yeah. And you know, what I love about what you're doing, Kim, is that 
when I think about all of those things that you just said, that it's not you, it's happening in your body, you're feeling these symptoms, but it's also, it's what's going on around you. It's your environment. And for kids, they don't have that cognitive ability to process that. Um, So the work that you're doing is vital and we need more of it. We need this to go to a national level to have awareness because kids are not fully developed. Even, you know, when kids um, commit a crime, right, Mm -hmm. that that they aren't fully developed to understand their consequences or to believe their consequences. Um, But but knowing that children are children and they need our support as adults. Um, thank you for, I'll probably say this a thousand times. Thank you for doing this work, Kim, um, because they are our vulnerable. They're, they are the ones that we are here to really protect and serve. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, when we're doing suicide prevention, it's really important that we understand, um, for youth, the, you know, their developmental stages and abilities, um, because it does become a factor for them. Um, And when we're addressing suicide in that population, you know, it's important to be aware specifically of their needs. And yes, you, you know, they, they're not, um, you know, that frontal cortex is not completely, um, you know, developed and, and they do tend to be impulsive and they don't think about consequences um, and they're reckless, right? These are all things that we attribute to youth in yeah. general, right? Mm-hmm. This is how kids are. And that's why they need adult supervision because yes. we know that that's the way <laughs> their brain works. Yeah. Um, well, those are also really significant risk factors for, for somebody yes. to make a suicide yes. attempt, right? That, that they, they don't think things through. They don't think about consequences. They're impulsive in their thinking. Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, we have to be aware of that and make sure that we're giving kids tools to help yes. keep them safe um, when their brains are, you know, when their thoughts and their feelings are in that state. Yeah. So let's get into some of the tools. And one thing that um, you talk about is uh, means safety. Yes. Can you share what that is? Because I would guarantee that most of the public doesn't know what mean safety is. Can you share about that? And then you can go into some of the other tools that have been really helpful um, that you teach Mm -hmm. and that we should all be aware of. Um, So mean safety is it's a really important part of suicide prevention. Um, And it's it's basically just this idea that if if people don't have access to the means to uh, attempt um, to take their life, then they're not able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we talk about mean safety, primarily we're talking about two things, firearms and medications. Yes. Um, those are the two two of the most common um, suicide methods. And there are also two that are, are very preventable through mean safety, um, you know, uh, activities. So with firearms, um, we know that over half of suicides are completed with a firearm. It's a very lethal method. Mm-hmm. Um, 82% of people who attempt suicide with a firearm die. Okay. Um, and the the other you know percentage that does survive, they tend to have very significant injuries, right? So this is yeah. an extremely lethal method. Um, for youth, 51%, so just over half wow. of suicides are completed with a firearm for youth. Wow. Um, 80, and, and they're not able to own their own no. weapon, let's just be clear. <laughs> yes, and so 82% of the guns used in a youth suicide, um, those are owned by a family member, typically their parents. Okay. 
Um, so these are guns that they have in their home. Yeah. Um, two thirds of those guns are stored unlocked in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the other third of the cases, the youth knew how to access the gun. They okay. knew the codes or knew where the key was or um, how to access that gun. Yeah. Um, so the it's basically an understanding with mean safety that if we don't have access to those guns, right, mm-hmm. then we're not able to make that suicide attempt, right? Yes. If a youth doesn't have access to the gun, they're not able yeah. to make an attempt. Now, there is a myth that, well, but they'll just find another way, mm. right? They'll just do it a different way. That's a myth. We have lots of data and and, and examples that show that that's not true. Yeah. Um, first of all, when we have look at people who are who have made multiple suicides, suicide attempts, they tend to stick with the same method. Okay. So people kind of, they have this one particular method that that's their, that's, you know, their, their plan and they're comfortable with that. And that's what they tend to use. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is when we've had other situations with other types of means where um, that, that means has become unavailable to people, um, the suicide rate will drop, right? Um, particularly with that method, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, change to a different method. We don't see increases in other uh, ways that people attempt. Um, So one of those, for example, is, um, you know, a good kind of natural example of that is that, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, there used to be a toxic element to natural gas. And and so um, that that was a common suicide method where people would, you know, open the oven, turn on the gas and breathe the gas. And that was how they would take their life. Um, Well, governments across the, you know, England, England and, and, and Europe and the United States, when they started removing that toxic element from natural gas. So obviously suicides with that method yes. decreased to zero because it's no longer toxic. Right. Well, when we look at that same period of time, there's not an, a subsequent increase in suicides with other methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what this comes down to is a basic understanding that suicide often happens when people are in a moment of desperation and crisis. So when we can prevent access to the means, it gives that crisis time to resolve. And even just a few minutes, right, even if we can just get them two or three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, they'll they may feel a little bit better, yes. right? They get past that that urge, that crisis that that is um, driving those feelings mm-hmm. of, of suicide. Um, and so, the way that we can do that, right, is through um, gun control legislation, gun safety, building mm-hmm. a culture of safety around guns, safe storage in our homes, yes. um, and then with medications, the same thing: safe storage of medications in our home. Um, you know, eliminating unneeded medications from our home. Um, and so when we, especially for parents, can it's it's a very easy action that we can take, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Where we can be safe with these things in our home and then you're decreasing the potential that, that your child in your home is, is going to be able to attempt suicide with those methods. Right. And you were, you talk about a, a moment of crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to come back then around to this culture of safety that we all have moments where we feel like we're in crises, um, where we just are fed up with the world. We're fed up with our family. We're fed up with school, whatever that is. I think that we all have that feeling um, at least once in our lives. And in that moment, 
if there were um, support around that. Mm -hmm. And that comes back to that culture of safety, as does these um, uh, common sense gun laws and locking your weapons up and and Mm -hmm. doing the same with medications. Um, But when we talk about a culture of safety, it goes much deeper. And it, it really, to me, it needs to go into every community. The leadership needs to be preaching that from every pulpit um, about a culture of safety and a, a culture of inclusivity and support for our children. Um, because again, you know, our children become the adults. They are the future of our nation. Mm-hmm. And if if children feel like they need to escape our society, we're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. We need to address this and fix this. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, the, the leaders need to be um, shouting about it, but also community members should be taking action. And whether that's just uh, acknowledging, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about this the other day of just acknowledging a child and especially in the immigrant population um, in that we, I was listening to um, a woman and she was saying that they just need to be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. to let them know that you're not out to get them, but you see them as human in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. So really, um, you know, that that's one part of that culture of safety is just helping people to feel um, affirmed, to feel like they belong, mm-hmm. um, to feel like they're, they're an important part of society. They have a purpose for being here and we need them here. Um, so anything that you can do to just extend that to, to another person and especially to a child is really important. Um, but the other thing that people can do that's really important when we're talking about safety is, um, you know, just thinking about, like you said, everybody has moments when we feel overwhelmed and we're not able to cope. This is part of, you know, it's, it's, it's a part of life, yeah. right? The human um, experience. Th- things happen that upset us. Um, and so what we can do is we can learn how to be better at supporting people, mm-hmm. right? How to validate people and support them in those moments of crisis and help them you know, get what they need um, so that they don't go in in other unfortunate paths when they don't feel like they're supported. And so one thing adults can do um, and and community members in general is just start learning about better ways to communicate and better ways to be supportive, how to recognize that person when they're in crisis and then what to say and what to do um, to support that person. And unfortunately, what a lot of people think is, is, um, you know, it's, well, telling people to go to counseling, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or telling them they need therapy. And it's like, oh, you're really upset. You're having a hard time dealing with this. Like, you know, um, you should go to counseling about that. Um, And like you said, right, we don't, we don't always, that's not always what people need. Um, You know, we have uh, an unfortunate thought that everybody who has um, either problems with mental illness or problems with thoughts of suicide, they need counseling or they need hospitalization. And, and, and those are really valuable, important things for, for many people, and they are very helpful, but it's not necessarily what everybody needs. Right, right. And oftentimes what people need is just a human connection. Yeah. They need that connection with somebody to know that there's another person who cares about them and to feel that. And so we can all learn to do that. We yeah. can all learn how to be better at that and be that person who can be supportive of somebody when they're having crisis. Yeah. yeah and 
I think to, uh, you know, we are in this space of individualism. Um, we, uh, we think that we are here alone and we've got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we got to do it on our own. Um, so we know this isn't true, right? That society, yeah. and I've talked about this in the podcast before that, you know, we need society. We cannot, we are not an island. We cannot survive on our own. And I've given the history of how society is created, how communities are created and the value, right? We couldn't build our own house. We couldn't build our own car. We can't have our own schooling. We don't have time to school our children, to grow their food, mm-hmm. all of these things. So society is necessary. And yeah, we depend on other people. Exactly. Yeah. And we need to start acknowledging that when it comes to our emotional well-being, our mental health as well. Right. That, yeah. Yeah. So you, and I think you had kind of mentioned earlier and we sort of got away from it, but this idea of, of help seeking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it is, it, it, we do have this very, you know, individualistic belief in our society that we shouldn't need help. Mm-hmm. We should be able to do everything on our own, yeah. um, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, but unfortunately that's not the case, right? We can't do everything on our own and and we do need help. Um, The problem is, is that when we approach things with mental illness and suicide, we tend to put the impetus on the person Mm -hmm. and we say, if you need help, ask for it. Right. Um, So there's no responsibility on me. The responsibility is on you. If you needed help, you should ask for help. Right. Um, So the problem with that, though, is that um, it's hard to ask for help. Absolutely. Right? Yep. And, and, and when people do ask for help, it's, it's more a function of their feelings of safety. Right. So in order for people to ask for help, they need to feel safe. So they need to feel like they're not going to be judged or treated harshly if they, if they ask for help. Um, and they need to feel like, there is actually help, Mm -hmm. right? That there is something that can help them to feel better. Um, And so it's not necessarily about what is going on with that individual, but what they feel, um, you know, around, around them, that culture of safety that they feel like if they ask for help, they're going to be understood and they're going to be supported and there is actually going to be help available to them. So unfortunately, when it comes to suicide, we don't have that, right? Um, Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, we're working on it. But people feel like if I tell other people that I have thoughts of suicide, um, they're going to think badly of me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be stigmatized. The the thing we hear from youth a lot, unfortunately, is they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, They feel like they're going to be punished for having thoughts of suicide. Um, And so they don't really feel like they can talk openly about it. Um, The other thing is, is that, you know, youth often talk about um, that idea that, you know, is there help actually available? And they go, but the things that are there, they don't help, right? Yes. Like you mentioned, yes. I know if I say this, they're going to want me to go to counseling or they're going to want me to go to the hospital and those yeah. things don't help, yeah. right? They're not helpful. Yeah. Um, and so what ends up happening is then we don't ask for help. Yes. Um, 
And so that's, you know, one of those areas where we have to change that in our culture and we have to build that, that culture of safety where we're not just saying, if you need help, ask for it, but we're making it okay for you to ask for help. We're creating the space where you feel safe um, and where you feel like there are things that are, that are actually going to be able to help you. And unfortunately we don't have that right now. Mm -hmm. So the problem is, is then instead of putting that person on that, that responsibility on that person to ask for help, we need to shift that back to us and say, if we know that people have a difficult time asking for help and that it's hard for them to ask for help, then we need to ask them if they need help, right? We need to ask them if they need support rather than waiting for them to come to us. Yes. And that takes us being present. Yes. Seeing the person, the individual in front of us. And you, uh, I think you have some really great advice. Can you share with us if I was in crisis or if you just noticed that I was struggling, what would you say to me so somebody else could mimic that with a friend of theirs? Sure. So um, we we teach a method of talking about suicide um, that it's it's a way of talking about it with compassion and with care. Yeah. Um, so typically in, in the realm of suicide prevention for, for many decades, what people have been taught is to just ask the person directly, are you having thoughts of suicide? Right, right. Um, and, and it is important that we do ask specifically about suicide, right? You don't want to ask if, if the person is going to hurt themselves or right. something like that, right. because that can be misunderstood. We do right. want to say the word suicide. And let me just add here that um, from personal experience and being asked that over and over while I was dealing with my PTSD, I would lie almost every time because I did not feel safe. Yes. What we want to do is, again, keep in mind it's on us. It's our responsibility to let this person know they are safe that we're not going to judge them and that they're going to be supportive. So you want to change that and ask that in a really supportive way. So we teach a couple things. So first of all, you want to explain to the person what you've noticed, right? Mm -hmm. If you've noticed these signs, you want to let them know what the signs are because you want to tell them why you're asking them this because it can be a shock to just be asked and you're going, why are you asking me this? Um, So tell them what you've noticed. But that also really importantly, it tells that person, I've been paying attention Mm -hmm. to you and I care about you because I have have noticed these things in you. Um, then the second thing you want to do is you want to normalize suicide. You want to make it okay um, and let them know that it's okay if they're experiencing this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you're going to say the word suicide when you ask them. Um, so a way that you might do this is if, if we could use you for Please. an example, because you, you've talked so openly about, about your sexual assault and PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, so one way I might do this is if I, if I just come to you and I'm going to do this in private, right? Because again, we want a safe space. So I'm going to come to you and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to say, Crystal, you know, I, I've noticed it seems like you're having a really difficult time lately. Like I, I've seen you kind of crying and, and trying not to show people that you're crying. Um, and and you're not really going to, you know, um, meetings or things that you had planned. Um, and so, you know, But I understand, you know, with your sexual assault, um, that this is a really difficult time. Now, when other people have had the experience of sexual assault, it's not uncommon for them to have thoughts of suicide. 
Is that something that you have thought about? Mm -hmm. So now I've let you know, I've paid attention to you. I see what the problem is. I've normalized it by telling you other people go through this. And that's really important. So you don't feel like you're the only one. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that by me saying that, I'm sending those signals that if you say yes and you talk about this, you're going to be safe and you're going to be supportive. And I am a person who understands. So we're building that um, safe space and that, you know, those feelings of safety in the way that we ask that question. Mm -hmm. That was beautiful. Thank you. As we've talked about this whole time, you know, it's, it is difficult. We want help, but we don't ask for help. Mm -hmm. Um, And one thing that I know from the veteran population is that we are as hard headed as they come. (laughs) And often, uh, quite often, veterans and active duty, they don't ask for help. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, if their job is tied into that, as you were talking about, it can be an issue. Um, But when we know that somebody's there and that they've been paying attention, that can shift everything. And it just... um, can can go miles and miles. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we kind of talked before and I'll, I'll throw in here too. So we can also do this even with with people who, you know, are at risk. Mm -hmm. Um, So if this is a person that maybe you don't really have that close personal relationship with, that Mm -hmm. you're going to notice those warning signs, right? Um, if this is a person that you interact with professionally, um, you may not have the, the opportunity to notice all these warning signs, but you can still use the same method to just bring this up with them in general, right? Yeah. So if we use the example of a veteran, right, who's maybe coming um, coming back stateside after a, a, a deployment or, you know, they're, they're reintegrating to civilian life, um, we can sort of approach this in the same way and just say, hey, you know, this is a period of time when a lot of veterans um, have some difficulty. And with that, they may have thoughts of suicide. Mm -hmm. Is that something you've experienced? Um, And so you can kind of approach it in general, just knowing that this is a a period of time that this person may have some struggles, Mm -hmm. right? And you're going to give them the opportunity. Now, if that person does not have thoughts of suicide, okay, fine, right? We can go on and we can move on. Um, But let's say down the road they do, Mm -hmm. right? And those Mm -hmm thoughts come later, they'll remember that you were that safe person, that you were the person that asked, right? That you were the person um, that asked in that compassionate way. Mm -hmm. And they have somebody they can come back to and talk to. Right. 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 Well, and I think it's also important. I don't know if we've talked about this yet is being able to talk about it. Um, Mm -hmm. Personally, you know, I struggled to hold it in and I didn't tell anybody for years. But once I finally broke the silence, that's when the healing began. And I didn't start the healing until that moment when I could vomit it out of my mouth to share what had happened to me and the feelings I was feeling and the thoughts that I was having. Um, But it took that feeling safe. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I just want to make sure that we talk about talking about it. Um, because often, um, and, and I 
am trained in yoga and Ayurveda and in the um, energetic um, sciences. So we know that um, emotional trauma, mental trauma, we hold that physically in our bodies. It expresses itself in physical ways. Um, and when we hold that trauma, um, sometimes it's just that holding. Um, mm-hmm. But when we can let go of it, when mm-hmm. we can feel like we can, uh, again, vomit it, <laughs> scream it out, cry it out, but just be able to express it, it, it can change the entire way that we feel about ourselves and, and how we feel supported. Right, right. And I just, so I love what you just said with just one clarification, right? that sometimes some people don't want to talk about it, mm-hmm. right? Or they're not mm-hmm. able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not just talking, it's letting it out in some way, mm-hmm. expressing it in some way. Yes. Um, so especially with, uh, you know, with our younger people, um, with youth who they don't always have words, right? They, yes. they, their communication skills aren't as developed. And so um, not just talking, talking is great for people who, who need that, but also art yes. and music yeah. and mm-hmm. animals and yoga and lots of different, you know, physical Martial activity. Yes, whatever way works for this person to get that tension and those feelings to get them out physically from the body um, is beneficial. Um, So, you know, talking is one way, but there's lots of other ways that people can do that. Um, And it is something that, you know, that's one of our dangers with with always kind of pointing people towards hospitalization or counseling. Um, Thankfully, we are developing a lot of other um, it, it is becoming more recognized uh, within the realm of our, our the services we provide in therapy and counseling that talking is not always what people need, right? Right, right? So we do have expressive arts in therapy. We have art therapy. We have music therapy. We have animal-assisted therapies. Um, you know, there's uh, boxing and, and, like you said, martial arts and yoga, and we're using all of these different ways to help people. So it doesn't just have to be about talking yes, anymore. Thank you. Um, but but yeah, but the you know the sentiment is there, right? We have to get these things out, and we have to have a space for people um, to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, and what that comes back to is, it it's we have to be the one to to create that space. We have to let them know that this is okay, right? We have to be the ones out there talking about this issue in to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we need people in our community talking about suicide. We need uh, leadership in our in our government talking mm-hmm. about suicide. Um, and so we're we're letting people know this is an okay thing to talk about. You don't have to hold this in. You're not the only one other people experience this and it's okay to let this out and to discuss it and to talk about it um, and to talk about it openly. Um, And so it it does, it it takes a lot of other people making those steps and doing that first. Um, But it's such an important part of suicide prevention, right? It's, it's so important, especially with our young people to normalize this issue. Um, You know, when we look at statistics, we know one in six youth have thoughts of suicide. Right. One in 12 
attempt suicide. Um, You know, for adults, it's lower. When we look at all adults in general, it's about one in 25, but that's still a lot of people. Um, So when you're thinking about our youth with one in six having thoughts of suicide in a a standard classroom of kids, that's about four kids in that room who, who are experiencing this. Now, who in their school is out there saying, hey, all of you children who are having thoughts of suicide, it's okay, right? You can talk about this and we can feel comfortable with this. Um, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And part of the reason it doesn't happen is because we're uncomfortable with it. Absolutely. We're afraid. Yes. <laughs> it makes us uncomfortable because we don't know what to do and we don't know how to respond to that person. And we're afraid that, oh my gosh, what if this person does do this? What yes. if they do attempt, right? Well, and I think that's been the belief and that myth yes. because we don't even talk about suicides in the media. They don't talk about them in the news. When somebody dies of suicide, they try to hush it and yes. you know sweep it under um and you because are saying we uncomfortable need... yeah, yeah so we have to get comfortable with it right yeah. we have to be okay with it um and and you know like you said unfortunately outside of you know those really celebrity suicides when it's just somebody in our community we don't talk about it yeah. you know we don't we don't do the a life remembered pieces right mm-hmm. for for our community members yeah. um who who have died of suicide we go oh we can't talk about that yeah. right um because we have all of these fears um but that fear comes from a lack of knowledge yes. and myths and misconceptions. Yeah. And and the fact is, is that most people who have thoughts of suicide, what is really helpful to them is just talking about it, just getting it out in whatever way that is, right? Yes. Through that art, through exercise, through whatever mm-hmm. means it is for them, yeah. get it out. Um, but in order to do that and create that safe space, we all have to get over our own <laughs> our own fears and our own uh, discomfort with the, with the subject. Yes, absolutely. The thing about sociology is that it's so broad. We study society, but different aspects. And for me, I studied quite a bit about um, race and ethnicity and Mm -hmm. um, sexism within our systems. Um, That was what I liked to study, Um, studying the military and and how it affects spouses, studying children and how if they don't have food on the table, then they don't do well in school, right? Sociologists have this ability to study these things and then bring that data forward. Mm -hmm. And so I just think we need more sociologists out there educating us because you're bashing that myth that we have to keep quiet or not talking about it. No, we do need to talk about it. We need to talk about it so that our children feel comfortable to come to us or that we feel comfortable to speak to our children, um, you know, creating that community. Yeah. And that's right to my heart because, you know, being in the field now of suicidology, Mm -hmm. um, you know, doing the work that I do and, and coming into that field and I look around and I'm going, where are the sociologists? Right. Um, So we really we really do need that interdisciplinary approach. We need, um, you know, people not just from sociology, but, um, you know, anthropology and and, and lots of our other social scientists um, and psychology. And yeah. And and so to try to kind of move this out of the realm of just being biological mental illness Mm -hmm. um, or what's going on in the brain, because it's not. So we need all of these other voices bringing these perspectives. Um, And one really important part of that comes from 
you know, survivors, right? Like, like my family, like me, um, and people who have attempted suicide and, and survived and, and are now talking about it yeah. for them to be able to say, you know, this is what I needed. This was my experience. This is what I felt. And this is what I needed. Um, and, and, you know, we have a lot of survivors now who are stepping up and saying, but what you're offering, this is not what we need, yeah. right? Yes. The way that we're approaching suicide prevention in this country, our survivors are saying, this is not working. This is not what people need. And they're yes. really driving that movement for us to you know, we need to start looking at this differently. Mm -hmm. We need to start addressing this issue differently because what we're doing is not working, yes. right? We know it's not working because the rate keeps rising, yes. right? And so that's on us. Mm -hmm. We're not doing the right things and, and giving people what they need to prevent this outcome. Um, and so, yeah, it, it really takes a whole community effort. We need a community of people coming together around this issue. Yes. Well, thank you, Kim, for taking the time to share and really having an honest discussion, um, opening those lines of communication. Mm -hmm. um, and so for every podcast, I give homework. Yes. Could you give the American people some homework when it comes to suicide prevention, education, um, giving them a few tools so that they feel prepared. And you've already given us some tools. So go back and rewind, folks, if you didn't remember how to um, approach somebody and, and really um, ask in a compassionate and loving way. But is there something else that we can take as well? Yeah, so I have a couple things. Um, so we, we have talked about, um, you know, being educated, right, and, and understanding that these communication skills, they are skills. We can all learn these things. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the first things people can do. Now, in our program, when we, when we talk to youth, um, about suicide, we do encourage youth to talk to adults, right? Because they're not talking to adults and they do need to, right? Yes. They, um, it's a very difficult thing for kids to handle on their own and we want them talking to adults. The problem is, is as adults, we're not really good talking about it, yes. right? Um, so when we talk to youth, we tell them, we ask them to identify who is your trusted adult? Who is the person that you could go to and you could talk about this that you would feel safe and you know that they would understand and they would support you. That's mm -hmm. your trusted adult. Mm -hmm. um, so for adults, you could be that trusted adult for a child, mm -hmm. right? Any one of us could be that trusted adult for a child in our life. Yeah. So if you're in that situation and think about that, if a child comes to me and tells me this, do I know what to say? Yeah. Do I know what to do? Mm -hmm. If you don't, then you need to find a training, right? Yes. And there are lots of them offered in communities around the country. You can always contact us, um, but there are various trainings available. So just do a search and find a suicide intervention training in your area and go get that education. There are, are programs that are just an hour that are very mm -hmm. basic. Um, we try to do at least three hours. There are trainings that go up to eight hours, depending upon how much you know time you want to invest in this, but even just right. an hour, just okay. learn a little. Um, 
Um, so that's the first thing that people can do. Um, the second thing is um, just start thinking about suicide prevention and how you can build this into what you're already doing in your life. Okay. And so one of the things that when we're working with agencies and institutions and we're talking about trying to bring suicide prevention in um, to our, our institutions and in society um, it doesn't have to be like a separate thing, right? It doesn't have to be something else. Um, really, it can often just be adding that in and being purposeful about it in the things that you already do. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, this could be something um, like if you work on gardening, right? Um, we have some efforts for community gardens in our area. Um, so it could be just something as easy as saying, hey, you know, we're going to have this event that's that's teaching people how to garden. Gardening is a really great coping skill when you're stressed out. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, this is something you can use when you're having a difficult time. Mm -hmm. Right. So now we've we've illustrated to people that this is a coping skill. Yeah. We're also talking about mental illness. We're talking about stress. We're talking about feeling overwhelmed. So we're yes. bringing those things up. Um, I was working with an organization that that is planning a game night for their kids, right? Nice. Just something fun. And it's like, okay, all you have to do is just be purposeful in making that statement yes. and say, this is something you can do when you're having a really difficult time coping, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so I encourage everybody, think about what you already do. Think about what you already do in your job, in your community, yes. in your life, and just think, how can I make this purposeful and meaningful and and bring a, a mention a discussion of mental illness and suicide into what I'm already doing right we're yes. not asking you to add more right because we're all busy we all already have a lot on our plate yes. but really it's just that one sentence that yes. one announcement that one little added thing to what we're already doing can make a huge difference and when you already have their attention yes, yes. very much yes yeah. all right thank you kim for those pieces of homework easy enough folks go get a little education <laughs> go um just add it with intention um speaking about mental health and um as I've said before, you know, the health of a nation is really um, a reflection of the health of the people. Yeah. And for us, um, seeing that we are carrying these symptoms of a sick society right now, we need to address this. So bring some attention to your next gathering and just mention mental health, <laughs> mention um how you feel it's appropriate to mention, uh, and also go out there and get some education. If you are an adult, um, if you are a responsible adult, uh, go out and get some education so that you can be that safe place for a child, um, or maybe you're a safe place for a lot of children. Um, but please be responsible and and reach out to Kim if you have questions. Um, Kim, you are getting ready to do an event in the fall. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so this event is called uh, Parima, and it's our art and music show. Um, we've This is our fourth year doing this. Um, and it's really just, um, it's a show for people who have experience with mental illness, with suicide, with trauma. Um, really, it is that outlet for people who express those experiences through art and music. Um, and so we just provide a space. Um, people can submit their work and we display it in the gallery. We have live performances of, you know, music and, and spoken word and people reading poetry and dance mm-hmm. and, and lots of different things um, in our gallery. Gallery. We have, you know, written works that we print and display. We have drawings and paintings, um, sculpture. Um, we have videos. We have people that make short films. And so um, it's really anything, anything that people use to express their experiences and we put it on display. Um, and it, it's not only an outlet for them, but it also becomes a space where other people can come in and they can um, experience that and they can learn a little more and they can have some you know, gain some of that compassion and understanding that comes from really um, listening to somebody's story and and sharing that experience with them through through the work that they've created. Um, it's it's not judged or juried. It's open to everybody. We we pretty much take anything people submit, and it's a very supportive environment. So you don't have to be like a talented person. It's not about your talent. And so that is in the fall. Do yes. you have a date set? Yeah. Yes, it is uh, Saturday, um, uh, October 19th. Okay. Um, and it's at the Soto Theater in uh, downtown Champaign. Excellent. And we have uh, the submission forms on our website are open right now. That's rattlethestars.org. And people can go on and they can, um, you know, fill out the form and, and submit their work to the show. Excellent. I can't wait to hear about it and to see um, people's art. I don't know if I'll be in the area, but I've already been thinking, how can I get here? (laughs) Um, And so one other thing that Kim and I are going to be doing together, I'm going to be doing a dual fundraiser with Kim. So I approached Kim and I shared with her my passion around suicide awareness and education from personal experience, but also, again, that anger that children feel like suicide is an option in our country and that it's part of our culture. Um, And so um, we connected in that space and I want to do a fundraiser. So friends that are listening, friends of Kim, friends of Crystal, I'm going to ask you to donate here. Um, The first two weeks of June, we'll do this fundraiser. And so we are going to split the proceeds 50-50. Half will go to Rattle the Stars. Half will go to my campaign so I can continue to travel the country and meet other folks doing amazing work like Kim. Him. Um, and so if you're listening and you want to give, give double, please. <laughs> that way we can both continue to do our work. Let me just mention too that. So she gets a grant, but she offers her work, her education for free. So she's out there burning the oil at both ends, taking care of herself, her family, and the community. So if you have been waiting on an opportunity of when you wanted to give to the campaign, give right now, give double so that we can gift Kim half of what we earn here. And that'll be it. Kim, thank you again for spending your time with me. Thanks for listening, folks. And um, here's to a more educated America. This has been Fireside Chats with Crystal. Thank you for taking your precious time to invest in yourself, your community, and our country. Now go out there and shine, baby, shine. Our country needs us now more than ever. 
If you like what you heard, please check out the curriculum link and dive into more learning already live. Then head over to my website and donate to the cause. I'm offering my curriculum for free, so it's up to you to see the value in what I'm doing and support your girl along the way.